every time I go to a different facility for a different sport to speak with a different coach, it strikes me how much different the areas where competition happens are and how these areas shape uh, the way competition happens. So today I'm over at the UW Boathouse about to interview a legendary coach, Coach Chris Clark, the rowing coach who's won many titles and championships. Here's Coach. Hey, Coach. How you doing? I'm recording. Right now, I got, live, I, right I'm now. live, and I messed up and forgot my microphones. I had these little times you clip on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So will, my, it, will it work okay? I think so. Yeah. So I'm oh. going around and learning from coaches different oh, things. Come on, you. <laughs> How much you can learn from me? Oh, as I was walking in, I was saying that you, you've won on every level. Like, yeah, that's true. National titles, yeah. world championships, yeah. worked with all over the world. That's that's pretty awesome. One thing we don't want to do is go to my office much. I, you know, I'm the kind of guy that if I go, I don't unpack for about a month. And Jane is all over me. <laughs> so my office is crap from Texas, which you know was. Two and a half weeks ago, that we yeah. <laughs> we can, uh, I just want to make sure this, door's open. this facility is. Uh, when was the like latest redo of it? Well, it it was complete. Essentially, we moved in almost exactly 15 years ago. Okay, almost, almost it looks still beautiful. And yeah, there's small things that drive me insane, but it is in pretty good shape considering how many people come in and out of here. You know, That's an interesting thing about your sport, isn't it? Just the sheer numbers. Yeah, it's hundreds and hundreds of visits a day. You know, often the same people more than once. But... Is this uh, study area here get used a lot? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice view. Wow. I remember when I uh, when I came back from Texas, this was 15 years ago. We had just, and this was completely open. Nothing was in it. Oh, it was. And I just dropped my bags like they look yeah. like here. Yeah, yeah. Probably haven't unpacked them since then. <laughs> and just dumped it all. Yeah. Do you yeah. spend, uh, in your daily routine, do you, so you have, early, do you guys already work out today? We're like, on flex day today. One of the 14 days off that we have to have. Oh, okay. Today is, we've gotten rid of most of them, but we still have, I think, two more after this. But today is one of them. So okay. So they're on their own. Okay. We can't do anything. What's your routine on, like, a day like today? Well, it's, you would normally, you come and you practice in the morning and then you practice again in the afternoon. Okay. And I'm, uh, if, yeah, I'm a colossal time waster. It's very difficult for me to focus as well. <laughs> for, but whatever I'll, you're I'll doing, it's, whatever I'll you're doing, in, it's working. Well, I'll go in bursts. Yeah, let's go over to that room over there. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll go in burst. There's no question. I don't know if it's worse, that kind of lack of attention, our ability to focus, or, or it was always that way. I'm just maybe more aware of it. <laughs> so, but that's why... Uh, well, it's kind of refreshing to hear, actually. Oh, it's honest. That, that you don't have to be perfect to be a great coach. Nah. Well, the, in terms of your organization and everything, I mean. Well, the, the key is having people who fit and fill all those weaknesses you have around you. 
you uh, have to have those people. Yeah. Right? That's true on any level in any profession, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know exactly you know, what you have as far as support, but it, I'm sure there are people that do things a lot better than you in Well, ways. this is a case in point today. I'm, I, you know, like I have all these technical sure. things that I, I don't do very well. Well, um, that's also why we get married. Because <laughs> we generally find someone who's significantly better than we are in multiple, multiple ways. Not to mention giving birth. We're not good at that. <laughs> They're significantly better than we are. But I, I thought about that just when you think about it. When you have your first kid and he's upset or she's upset and you don't know what to do. The dad. Yeah. Whereas the mom never seems to be particularly... Uh, how do they know? But they do. I don't know. Yeah, it, but they do. Just gut feel or something. Yeah, exactly. I didn't have that at all. Yeah, this is... Uh, it could be a, wor- a worse place to work. Well, yeah, we're looking out right over Lake Mendota. I was saying on the way in, I was starting some opening comments in that I've been going around to these different spaces, and like a lot of them are, you know, they're controlled environments where you have, you know, a volleyball court that's indoors and controlled a basketball right. court, and even football to a certain extent. I mean, they're affected by the conditions, but on a daily basis, if it's raining or horrible weather, they can go inside and practice. Right. You're, you're totally at the mercy of nature, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, we have the ability to do indoor training, obviously, right. or else you wouldn't have any success at a cold weather school. Yeah, the lake is frozen. But one thing that people don't consider, and it's, we're extremely public sport. I mean, we're generally in areas that are accessible to the public. So you're practicing right in the middle of where people are on this lake in particular, like in basketball or football, good examples. Closest might be cross country because they often yeah. train running through the streets and roads. Yeah. But even then... Or our track uh, team in the shell, they'll be in there practicing with those right. people. But out, you're out in the world out here, and you can't... Uh, so you have to uh, be a good citizen, which is... As uh, the, I, one of the things I was asking about was, like, the way you practice over the years, is it pretty much the same, or have there been, like, tweaks or changes that you've adopted, or... I guess well, the broader question is how do you learn and continue to adapt? Because you've achieved at every level. Yeah, I'll tell you. It, it, but the one characteristic I found of most coaches that had any success, and this is true of any, you don't even think about the success you've had. You're only thinking about the failures you had and or uh, valleys in, uh, on the road as opposed to the peaks. And you're always thinking about how did, how did I get here? What happened? How can I avoid it? That's essentially what I think about. But to your question, when I got here, it was right at the cusp of athletics in general, but particularly UW athletics booming. 96. It was or summer no, of 94. Summer of 94. Okay. And it was literally Coach, Coach Alvarez, Coach A, as I like to call him, he had you know, just come in and established. We got a football thing going. Uh, Pat Richter was the AD. So it was Al Fish. I don't know if you know Al, but he... he he was doing his part too. And so I was lucky to, you know, I got into uh, a luxury car. I didn't have to have a jalopy at any point. But when I showed up here, um, the boathouse was different than it is today. All over the country, as far as in rowing, boathouses are fairly grand edifices now for one reason, because most of them were built for just men's rowing. And then the boom of Title IX and women's rowing, we needed a bigger boat, everybody did. So they're often really, this isn't the only nice boathouse in the country. 
But nonetheless, it wasn't very big. You had the beginning of women's lightweight rowing was the first year I was here. And then you had women's open rowing and us, too small. But a couple of the things that struck me was that we had no lifts where we keep our power boats. We call uh, them launches. Yeah. Not every day those boats were inside the boat bays where we launch boats. And it was utterly inefficient. And I remember I keep thinking, well, this is nuts. Why aren't we? You have to push these power boats out every day. And I remember Jabo, my predecessor, saying, well, I, I, the lifts, I don't think it would work. It, it's too wavy. And I'm the type that I would say I'm a bit of a problem solver or else I take it as a challenge when someone says I can't do something. And I just kept thinking in all of the northern area of the United States in particular, because the weather's similar here in Minnesota, um, anywhere where they have lifts, this can't be the waviest place. Yeah. This right here. Yeah. I, I know it is pretty wavy when it gets windy, but it can't be. And I've seen lifts everywhere. So that was one of the things we did was we expanded the fleet. But it also... How did you, how did you solve that problem? It, it also... It, it, well, they, they just worked. They have okay. heavy-duty lift. They, meaning manufacturers, yeah. have heavy-duty lifts. But the, part of it was budget. Jabo was here at a time when there was no money for anything. Yeah. He, it was just hand-to-mouth existence. And I've, I've never had that issue here. Yeah. And also it was... We have to row, so you could go multiple days without rowing because the wind here on our lake, as we're looking out, we're looking directly north, which is really handy. So you can tell, it's very easy to tell if I say it's a north wind, then immediately you're thinking if it's anything over five miles an hour, the water's going to stink. Say it's a south wind, which coming off the shore, we can row. But anything from the north, northwest, northeast, we can't really row here easily. So I realized we should row elsewhere on the lake. And then in the spring of 97, we uh, started rowing at a Marshall Park. We kept boats over there. Is that over like in Middleton? It's literally on the edge of Madison, Middleton. Okay. Where we keep our boats is five feet from Middleton. (laughs) I'm happy it's in Madison. Not that I have any problem with Middleton, but Madison, I found the city parks and the city is incredibly... Amenable to anything. They're really helpful people. So you go on this, when the wind is a certain way, you go over Correct. there? Correct. Oh. And not for every single practice, depending on what we're doing, but when we have to row, especially in the spring. And it's, say, northwest. At, if it's northwest up to 10 or so, you can stay in here in the bay. Picnic Point uh-huh. is a good uh-huh. shelter. But if we have to do a serious practice, BB will often leave on the women's team, go to Wingra, which is another option. Yeah. And we'll go. We try to stay out out of each other's way only because a lot of boats can get yeah. congested. But that was another thing was, well, we have to row more. And uh, there's all sorts of things here that I, I've learned one thing about success. Well, there's a lot of things I've learned. One is eliminate the uh, impediments to success. You don't often have to focus on success itself, just eliminate the impediments. So here it was, weather was one. Yeah, weather was one. So you figure out, I got to live with it. What can we do to to maximize. And uh, having a, boat, a better tank has helped us. We had a tank. That's the uh, device you sit in, the water flows by. It's an incredible teaching device. But it still requires a certain type of person to be successful. And I'll say one of the, and this one, this next thing I'm going to say, I've failed on this front multiple times, which is, you remember what the legend of what Sisyphus, I can't remember if it was Greek or I think it was Greek. 
Here comes and, all those books you read. No, and he, yeah, he was pushing a giant rock uphill, you know, and it was always, uh-huh. he never was able to do anything but that. And I think it, your momentum of your team is always pushing a rock, always. Um, so, for example, let's use basketball. Bo Ryan, it, it looked like from afar, well, it was always going downhill, it was going so well. In other words, in a good way. Yeah. It's not. And I, I, I don't believe the rock is ever, ever anything but on an incline. It's just when you're really going well, it barely inclines. So it's moving along well. But the second you change, get complacent, or you back off, that incline goes up and it literally crushes you mm-hmm. immediately. And that's happened to me in a few different ways more than once. And it's, it's not always complacency. It's just um, something that... For whatever reason, I didn't have my proper glasses on that I normally could see. Like, wow, that was bad. So, and in, in rowing, in any sport, though, it's true that upstream action creates downstream results. That's a fact. I mean, you see it in football or basketball. Any sport people are mostly familiar with. There's hardly any instant. Like, for example, if we have a, a tough football season, we don't come in immediately. This isn't professional where you have... Uh, um, Free agents, yeah, you know, yeah. like for example, the Packers were significantly better on defense because they had. Free, we don't have that in football, not to mention in our sport. So it's things that happen in recruiting two or three years out affect our team, and the same for us. And so, in other words, if you've made some mistakes, you may not be obvious, or it may not be obvious to you. And I made. Whew, um, we're just coming out of one, which is. We'll rowing in particular in this country. A lot of people say, "Have you read that book about uh, the University of Washington?" Yeah. You know, whatever it is. And Boys I refuse to read it Boys because I graduated from Berkeley, and there are mortal <laughs> enemies from day one. I know it's a wonderful story. One of my mentors at the Naval Academy, who coached there, who's still an employee there, he's the longest tenured person at Naval Academy, and he's still works as a tenured PE professor and he came there in 1975 he's the <laughs> longest employee there but he tells me about these people because he was a coxswain at yeah. Washington they're great wonderful however I'm uh, I, I haven't been able to read that book yet because of that theory but this sport was very different then it was let's find people who have all the attributes of rowing and the first uh, day it, of college right, they introduced them to it right them. and we yeah. The, I had an assistant coach here, a few assistants back, and it was also at a time when we had a separate freshman division, which is fairly, was common in sports 20 or 30 years ago. And, um, and it really, two miscalculations was, I've always felt that if we had a million novices, or I shouldn't even say that, let's say every single male that came here, came down to the boathouse and tried out, Yes, that would be awkward and difficult, but I would still be excited about it because we'd find some real studs. Yeah. I said the same thing about kids who wrote in high school. I thought, yeah, the more the merrier. That was absolutely dead wrong. Absolutely. Because of things like social media and the way people connect now and also how the dynamics of a team change. When you have people who are, have done something versus a multi-sport letterman who comes in? Who knows? Knows he knows nothing. So I had that. So, the, so the latter, the one who there's a, like a humility that absolutely it isn't even learn, humility. It's just you learn. know you know nothing. Yeah. And and your general response to anything is attack. 
Yeah. In a good way, like sack the quarterback, I'm going to score runs, I want to uh, fast break, slam dunk. That's just your typical athlete response. However, it's so the, – the spread and the, um, the vast differences in high school programs, you could have people who call it an art who have no idea what a brutal and power-driven sport it is. And that's generally what we would get. And you had kids coming in here that had no idea, even though they looked the part, mm-hmm. profile-wise, body-wise. But hardly any of them would race. They just don't race. You have to want to race. It's a race sport. And in rowing, it's unique. It's 2,000 meters, the longest endurance straight-line sport in the world. Mm-hmm. Everything else that's endurance has turns. And so if you get the lead in rowing, you can see the boat behind you. So there's a vast incentive to get the lead. Mm-hmm. So. Anyway, we had a team populated with that culture. And the novice, the walk-on kid, a lot of them just quit in disgust early because they didn't respect those kids. And it's not like we didn't have a program. The ones who had experience didn't? Yeah. No, well, the ones who had experience tried to dominate the culture, whereas the kids who were actual real athletes, and many of whom could have played at other sports, other places, this, forget this, I have no interest. These aren't my kind of people. And it's crept up on us. Mm-hmm. And it, it, instead of having uh, maybe one-third of the team, kids who were in high school or even less, we had the other way around. It was upside down. Mm-hmm. It's only now we're coming out of it. And I, it's funny, I have kids even today say, you don't like high school rowing. I said, no, 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 no. That's nuts. I don't like high school rowers rowing on my team. I want college rowers yeah, because it's a stunning shift. And you talk to any Yale, for example, who won the title last year, who had all international rowers. Well, those guys rode in high school. Now, granted, they're six foot six super studs and they've already rowed internationally. So there's nothing wrong with youth rowing there. Yeah. It's just the youth rowers that we would get. Yeah. And is there, a, is there a parallel held up here to like the basketball, that AAU culture? Absolutely. Like it brings like a... You know, An attitude. Me first. Yes. Uh, it's all about me when they're a youth player to yes. the college team. It, it can be, except that whatever, often at least an AAU kid has tremendous talent. And um, often these kids, what we want is a kid who rode in high school who clearly has. If you look at him, you think that's a, it's like a hidden value. It's like uh, private equity. You know, Every coach is looking for that. Someone that no one really r- realizes how good this guy can be but with the right attitude and it it's not easy to find them not here because the best of the I would say in the United States each year you get maybe four to five to six legit top American high school rowers and ones kids who work can make an instant impact yeah. unlike football who there's probably you know, a few hundred freshmen yeah. that can make an impact across the country. Now, part of that is there's millions of kids that do it. Yeah. So they're rare. It's not easy to do and to be good at it. So what we're always looking for here, if you're a high school rower, is the right attitude, the understanding, you don't know anything. Mm. I always, the first day, I say, all right, raise your hand if you ever rode in college. No one raised their hand. All right, good. And I say, that means you know nothing about yeah. college rowing. You know how to put the boat in the water. Good. You know what an oar is. Good. And anyway, it's these walk-on guys that are just unbelievable how good they can be. Because our chance of getting an elite athlete from that pool is much higher. You might get it. Our top kid right now, 
I noticed he was uh, second team all state in D3 basketball. And he was captain of his football team and his baseball team. And could have, I think he could have played at um, Eau Claire or Oshkosh, those teams. So he's a good yeah, player. Good athlete. Yeah, 6'5, 215, super stud. You get enough guys like that, you're going to compete. Yeah. It takes their junior years when you find out when a guy's. And I would say that's true in any college scenario. You think about your own background. You probably did not feel like you were as good a college player as you could until you started your junior year. Freshman year, you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. Sophomore year, you're starting to feel it. Junior year, I'm feeling good. And yeah. Frank Kaminsky is the best example I've ever seen of that. Remember? No yeah. one even heard of the guy yeah. for two years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, junior, where'd this guy come from? Yeah. So anyway, we find that here. And we're in a constant battle isn't the right word, but how do we get, how do we find these kids? Because we know they're here on campus. And we joke about profiling and, you know, that's a, that depending on how you look at it, that can be, we only mean it in the best way. We look for kids who, first of all, they got to be willing. And at SOAR, which is our orientation, which a lot of people know about, we'll talk to anybody that has an interest, no matter what they look like and, and, and how big they are. If they have an interest, that's your first step. But you're always looking for kids who are uh, high school athletes. And our first approach always, and it's never, it's not in any way a negative. You always say, hey, what sports are you doing in high school? And then they either tell you that or they say, I didn't do sports. And then always, you say, really? Because you look like you were an amazing athlete. And that I've never offended one person ever <laughs> by accusing them of possibly being an athlete. But it's a constant battle. And they're rare. I mean, it, I would say the last few years we haven't had near the success. We've been five, six, seven seconds slower than we had probably the decade before, which doesn't sound like a lot, but over a mile and a quarter, that's a significant yeah. amount yeah. of growing. So it's put us back on our average place. And part of it is because there's reliance on kids who rode in high school. Yeah. We didn't have enough of these studs, and now we're getting back to that. So, and so you're looking for a mentality along with the physical Along with the physical attributes, you got to have a, a mentality of r- relentless and a, a, a relentless attack, but also that I know I don't know anything, yeah. but I don't care yeah. that I don't know anything. I mean, I care to be a better rower, but it doesn't bother me. It's we had a couple of years, especially in the fourteen fifteen zone, and then probably culminated in our first eight in two thousand sixteen um, of guys that would do anything to lose a race. I don't mean purposely. They would get the lead and then collapse. Like, for example, you'd have a lead at 500 meters, which is one quarter of the way through the race. And then they'd lose by 15 seconds, which is almost impossible. And you had an entire team like that. And I've always regretted that. It's my responsibility as the coach to... That's still my responsibility. How did the team get there? And I always thought so many of those kids would have been so much more well-served to be on the team now. Yeah. Because in isolation, they could have flourished. Yeah. But if you had too many kids, you know, it's yeah. the locker room. It's yeah. team culture. Yeah. It's a big impact. Yeah. And, and just what you believe. And in, if you believe, I, uh, I've talked to one of my assistant coaches. One of them is Olympic champion. And he, he's a machine. So he, he never thought about much. That's just who he is. <laughs> and the other one, though, was undersized. And he said, I always figured people were better than we were. But I didn't care. I went after it. And that's kind of the way I was. I just assumed, all right, they're probably better than me. But that spurred me on. Yeah. yeah. Like, really? Yeah. Okay. You might be better, but I'm coming after you right now. It never stopped me. Whereas 
I think that first part is what we had a number of years of, but it did stop them. Yeah, yeah. There was no hierarchy in my mind any more than I just, I was just the type that always thought other, I even think it now, well, the other teams are better. And how, what are we going to do? So You're at this phase now where you're like one of the models for other people here and other places to learn from. Did you have like a model or someone that was like a mentor to you? I thought something? about that because you asked the, and you think about it, it's, this is probably, some people probably have one single person, but um, I had a, you know, it's an amalgam of coaches yeah. and each stop along the way. And my very, I, I didn't have any guidance. My, my parents both came from poor backgrounds, even though they were the first of their family to go to college. And I remember the one college period conversation I had with either of my parents was my dad. And I remember because I was from California and I asked him where Stanford, he goes up north. That's the only thing I remember talking about college. I literally had no clue. And my father was a teacher at a community college called Orange Coast College, which is in Costa Mesa, California. And it's a big sporty place, but it happens to have rowing. It's the only one. And he says, well, why don't you come to Orange Coast and row? And I said, okay. That was it. That's how. And that program, even to, to, is so professional in so many ways. And that was the beginning. The two coaches I had there, uh, Dave Grant, who was the head coach, who went on to become the uh, president of the college and is still active. And then a guy named Larry Moore, who was a Vietnam vet. And I, I remember thinking right after I left there, especially about Larry, my freshman coach, uh, he was just a talker, like a football coach. He didn't know too much about rowing. Are you kidding me? So much of the stuff I learned, literally, in my first nine months, I, sticks with me to that. So you know you, that. But at that time, you didn't know it? Like when you I, I knew that, that he was a cheerleader. It could get you going. But I didn't realize he actually knew rowing. There's, and I went on to... Uh, uh, to Berkeley. I was recruited by Steve Gladstone, who still is the coach at Yale. And I graduated Orange Coast in 1979. So Steve's been around a long this time. This seems to be a sport where people stay in yes. spots for a long time. And then uh, Mike uh, Livingston was our coach, but he was only the head coach at Cal for a few years. It's like he, this guy was such, uh, Mike was such, he was an Olympian, an Olympic medalist, Harvard guy. He was so, he was beyond coaching. He's the most intellectual person I've ever met in my life. But an incredible athlete, incredible person. And he made me think about the intellect side of rowing. And then from there, he had a succession of people on the national team. We had a, uh, at the national team level, a guy named Chris Korzanowski came in in 1983-84. And he was from Poland. And talk about an abrupt and uh, uh, style which uh, didn't mesh well with me. And he, I would say he terrorized a lot of people and then in retrospect I realized I don't know why I was all upset about it and since then I guy's a brilliant coach I don't think he should have been head coach but he was a brilliant coach but it's amazing how you can uh, reassess over time because you were they're still the same person but you're a different person and he was a real and much of what and Corzo is that that's his nickname he still works with the national team coach today who's an old friend of mine but after all these years, I still, a lot of what I learned from him. And, and then you have... Uh, so you're, when you're talking about you learned... You, so some of these coaches you learned like the... Actual the, technique. The technique. Or, actual or training and, and just approach. more the interactional, the Correct. way they interacted. 
And then I was in England for a while, and the guy, Mike Spracklin, who helped with Oxford, who was a national team uh, coach, Boltai, coach of gold medalist. And I'll never forget one. I was kind of a hothead. They called me Heater in college. I was, <laughs> and um, I'll never forget this. I mean, he, this guy at that time was already a legend. And at one point, we're in some practice, and I just went off. And he very calmly said, yeah, Chris, you know, uh, you're doing this uh, wrong. Here's how you should do it. And I just exploded on, what the hell? You don't know what you're doing. I mean, my coaches in the U.S., they don't blah, blah, blah. And he just looked at me calmly and said, I'm, I, I can understand uh, where your point of view, your uh, you're fatigued now and you're tired and you're upset because we had a, some race the week before we didn't do well. And uh, it's fine. Once you calm down and rest, we'll talk more about it. And it absolutely deflated him. I realized that's true professionalism. Yeah. It didn't phase him in the least yeah. that I went after him <laughs> at all. Yeah. I've never forgotten that incident. And it, I try to do exactly Have the same. Have you had that happen? Yes, not that or? often. Yeah. But occasionally a guy will just go off. Yeah. And I'll say, all right. I understand your frustration, and you're passionate. That's a good thing. Yeah. We want passion. Yeah. It's not easy, though, yeah. when someone comes after you like but that. But the fact that you had that firsthand experience yes. probably comes right back to you. And I realized how, how much, and you feel guilty and ashamed, but you realize, well, that's a true professional. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then at the, uh, then it went to the Naval Academy because uh, a best man at my wedding, a buddy who rode at Navy and was an Olympian, I was the kind of guy that always thought, and I don't mean this, this sounds bad, that I could coach better than a lot of the coaches I had. Mainly for, because I felt I could relate and communicate to the athlete better. Mm. Some of them were iron-fisted, which can work depending. And I thought, well, I can do this. But my father taught in college. My sister became a tenured professor. My mom was a teacher and a principal. So I'm from a family that does that. I I can do this. And I was in New York, and I had a chance, and the place, the business that we were involved with sold. This is in spring of 92. And then somewhere, it must have been summer of 92, he goes, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to Navy back. I'm going to be the novice freshman coach. You want to come and try this? I knew it was a, I thought, all right, I'll do it. Because this is my one shot if I'm going to be a coach. And then I fell in love with it right away. And I was at, I was there for two years helping this coach. And that was an incredible experience. Those Navy guys, it was amazing. Was Who it? now, by the way, are captains or colonels. And I just heard within about a year ago, one of them is close to being an admiral. So this, they're, they're on track for that. And I thought, this is amazing. I didn't realize they were pretty extraordinary, this group of guys. They're class of 96 at Navy. And they're all, there's seven or eight of them that work in the Pentagon. And one that's an XO on one of the, uh, meaning the first guys you coached? The first yeah. guys. I love those guys. And yeah. they're, they're going to essentially run the Navy. And they're, they're incredible people. And part of it was just the confluence of all sorts of events and me finding something that I, but that, that's what made me want to so do So maybe it. my last question for you. Then, oh, I'm sorry. Is, yeah, I've uh, is, wasted all the time. Oh, no, this is awesome recognizing what is a good opportunity for a young coach. So it's not always, you've, made, you've, made, you've, had all, you've been all over the world. You've competed and coached all over the world. Um, you know, for a young coach who's coming up and is looking at and has opportunities, it's not always just going to the best, most prestigious institution. I mean, there's probably a mix of what you're looking for in an opportunity. Like that one, going to the Naval Academy to work. Right. What, what, made you know that was a good opportunity or was it the only opportunity you had? 
Well, it was, it wouldn't have been the only opportunity. It was simply that one is I respected this, my buddy, a guy named Dan Lyons so much. I knew what a fabulous coach he was so I could learn from him. So that's him. one is the, yeah, he was about a, a year older than I was, but he seemed vastly advanced yeah. coaching wise and just his understanding of rowing and probably one of certainly top two or three guys I ever rode with. And another one of those guys that if you looked at him physically, I think, well, you know, he was six, four, six, five and skinny. He didn't look kind of nerdy, mm-hmm. but just unbelievable. So that was part of it, but it, it just seemed right. But there's no question what you just said is important that it, if you just go, like, for example, someone wants to cut it and break into football, well, I, I'm only going to go to a place like USC or, you know, Ohio State. There's plenty of other ways. You're going to find out real quick if you can have an impact on young people as a coach. And it's, it's not easy, though, being someone subordinate for a long time. And yeah. I know you have to be. Yeah. But that was the, the lesson Naval Academy helped me was that I had the, the head coach that became a mentor. He was an ex-Marine. And that's just the way it was. And I had never been in an environment where you had to just do what you were told, no matter what. And unquestioning, that helped me. There's something to be said for starting like at a low level. Well, I wasn't paid at all. Until learning something from the ground up. I was only paid the very end of my second year there. And I, I have, there's a lot of stories in this too. I, uh, I became a pizza delivery guy. And the, that why, right there. While you were coaching? Yes. That right there, <laughs> there's some funny stories. And because uh, one of the... Uh, TAD, that's called Temporary Assigned Duty. They would have kids that have graduated that haven't yet been assigned, so they would just work at the Naval Academy. And this guy was older. He was 25 or 6 because he had started as an enlisted man. And he, come on, pizza delivery, yeah, let's do it. And it was Papa John's Pizza. I'll never forget that. I used to like Papa John's Pizza. But when I had to eat it every night, the leftovers, I didn't like it so much. But it, it's important to do the lowest job all the time. And you have a tremendous amount of respect for everybody that does a good job. I, I, I've carried that with me today. From the people that clean the boathouse all the way to the ADs. And if you do your job well, I respect that no matter what it is. So, and it's helped. And it, it's important that a coach, nothing is below you. Nothing. So you still do some of the, the small stuff? Absolutely. Well, they guys know in Texas we were just there for two weeks. I'm a f- clean floor freak. I don't know why. I just am. I need a clean floor. It really bothers me at home. I vacuum all the time. So I'll grab the broom constantly and vacuum and clean the floor. And usually what happens is the freshmen get wide eyes and then eventually they try to take over. And I let them do some of it. But I'll do it. I don't care. And I'll get on my hands and knees and clean the floors up here. Matter of fact, I'm already plotting. The floors are bothering me upstairs. <laughs> this time of year. With yeah. The it gets, and I want to get down on my hands and knees to do it. It's important that you... And that isn't a put-on. Probably the players... Just, well, you want the clean floors, but also them seeing you do that is probably sending some sort of message. Yeah, now I'm not doing it for that. However, I realize it is a powerful yeah. That nobody is above or below anything. Nobody. Yeah. Because you're always humbled in sport. Always. Yeah. The minute you think you're out ahead, you're, you're down to the ground. You know how it is. So don't get too cocky or full of yourself. Ever. Because yeah. it's that rock. You push that rock, and then you turn the other direction, it crushes you. What's that story for? I'm not as well read as you. Sisyphus. Okay. Yeah, you can okay. look it up. Sisyphus okay. and the Rock. Okay. Well, yeah. because I, I, as I turn this off, I asked you about books.